Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. So we ended up making probably 15 different 3D printed models before it was all said and done and we had kind of the one we liked. Hey, my name is Felix. I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week, we learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn how to know what kind of educational content your customers care about, how to use 3D printing to prototype your product, and how to craft a pitch to a PR outlet. Today, I'm joined by Alex Commons from Bulat Kitchen. Bulat Kitchen creates incredibly sharp, beautiful, and premium blades for a non-premium price. And we're starting in 2016 in the base of Ottawa. Welcome, Alex. Hey, Felix. How's it going? Good, good. Thanks so much. So you, we, we, I explained you very briefly of the, an introduction about your product. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about the, the customer. Who is the ideal customer behind that will purchase your products? Um, so the philosophy behind the brand uh, is to get good kitchen knives into more people's hands. A lot of people have rubbish kitchen knives. Um, so we wanted to change that to as much, as much of an extent as we could. Um, so a lot of really good, high-quality kitchen knives um, have good, expensive steel. Um, and, you know, the, the markup that goes along with traditional retail multiplies that factor. Um, so we wanted to kind of go direct to consumer, try and get better better chef knives and kitchen knives into more people's hands. Um, so really anyone from a chef to, uh, you know, your mom <laughs> could yeah. be an ideal customer. Yeah, so give us an, a, kind of a, a lay of the land in terms of what's out there. Can you give us an idea of, or tell us, you know, how much, what's the price, what are the prices for your products and uh, what are the prices of the competitors? Yeah, so uh, the kitchen knives in general, you get the full range, right, from... Uh, you know, dollar store knife for literally a dollar all the way up to custom made, you know, multi thousands of dollars for truly incredible work. But it's more of an art piece uh, and something that, you know, is they are genuinely fantastic, but that's not for most people. Mm -hmm. So our product is $120 uh, US. So that's kind of it's it's priced within reach of your average consumer. Most people, you know, are willing to spend that on a nice tool for the kitchen or a good appliance, something that makes cook the cooking experience more enjoyable and a little bit easier. Um, so that was kind of, our target was around that range, 100 to 140, whatever made sense really in terms of um, both, you know, from a margin perspective mm -hmm. to make the business work as well as, um, to what the market would bear. The range for like kitchen knives is an interesting market because really there is everything. You have people, a lot of people impulsively buy kitchen knives when they need them. So they move out for the time and they'll just go pick up whatever at Walmart. And typically over time they'll they'll realize that they'll like they get dull and either they want to They'll have to go sharpen them and realize that that's not really going to work because mm -hmm. the knives, even if they did sharpen them, they dull again in a month because the steel is kind of rubbish. So they, it's typically at this point that someone would look into doing the research of like, okay, what makes a good kitchen knife? And that's kind of where we come in. As someone who's cooking more often, is using their kitchen knives, has maybe tried a good quality kitchen knife um, at a friend's house or a family member's house and wants to kind of step it up to the next level. 
Uh, and that's where we come in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you said lots of uh, great things here. I want to dive into a couple, couple of them. So you mentioned that this, this is priced at, you know, $120. It seems to, to start in. You you're saying that the this is a, a tool that people are once they start getting serious about actually getting better equipment into their their kitchen they'll start considering. So how do how do you capture them at that that moment? Because it sounds like they have to go through the pain of having you know crappy knives or dollar store knives, um, and then realizing that these break easily or they become dull very easily, and now they're ready to upgrade. How do you make sure that you're in their their mind or in their face? during that that period of their their i guess life or consideration uh, i think a lot of that has to do with understanding a customer's pain points doing research in terms of like maybe even google trends and looking at search traffic around like what people are searching for chefs and trying to address those things both through on-site content uh, ad content uh, and potentially like you know content that you're pushing out via YouTube or like blog posts, which we've just just started to crack the nut on. Um, but in the case of chef knives, something like, you know, the people are looking for uh, a well-balanced knife that has excellent edge retention and they're looking for uh, maybe specific um, angle for the, the edge um, because this may lead to the particular type of um, experience they're looking mm-hmm. for with the, the knife. Um, so it's just understanding those various pain points and addressing them individually with your marketing or content. Yeah, I was going to ask that next. You know, there's lots of education involved. It was what you're getting at because uh, the the customer they're going to want to consider things like the the steel, the craftsmanship, whether it's well balanced or not. Like a lot of these factors that I personally don't even know that these were factors that I need to consider because I'm probably not at that stage yet where I want to invest in a knife. How did you know that these were the important factors that your customers cared about so that you could actually focus on creating content around these topics? I think it it started certainly as a pain point for me personally. I I'm, I have a bunch of kitchen knives, and I, you know, I've been collecting them for a while. But I always had this kind of there was this gap. There was some all of the knives that were high in utility and were priced relatively reasonably around a hundred dollars all kind of felt ugly. So beyond even just utility, it was making something that kind of addressed the the pain points, the utility points, but also looked good. Um, so that's that was kind of the the seed of the brand, at least. Um, I wanted something that like ticked all the right boxes, but also stood out, and I was like proud to use and enjoyed using on a daily basis, and wasn't like, well, okay, it's a you know regular looking knife with a black handle that you know mm-hmm. feels great, but uh, didn't feel special. Like it worked well, but didn't feel special. I got it. So you knew that these were things that you cared about. When were you able to to test and validate whether the, the market also cared about these these factors? Early on, it was a lot of kind of just market research with kind of with Google Trends and looking at search traffic. Um, in AdWords, there's the keyword tool, um, so you can kind of see get a sense for what the what people are searching for. But then at a certain point, you kind of have to just go on a hunch and try it because trying to design something by committee is also can mm-hmm. lead to kind of disappointing results. 
Um, so you had like at some point it was okay. I knew there was uh, something out there, and I had to kind of explore that. And we did a lot of prototyping actually um, to kind of land on one design that we felt were confident enough uh, that we could take to Kickstarter. Got it. So you mentioned some tools there, Google Trends, and also uh, looking at search traffic. Can you get into a little more details on how others can use these, or maybe specifically how you use these tools to, and what kind of questions you were trying to answer? Yeah, if you're um, actually the most useful thing, if you're looking to address a particular question, is um, like Google suggestions. And there's tools, I think, I can't remember the name, but like I think it's called Uber Suggest is a yeah, good one. Yeah, sounds familiar. Yep. And you can figure out what all of the Google suggestions are around a particular kind of chain of thought. So you'll type in a few terms and you'll see what the, the suggestions are for that kind of chain of terms. So you would look up something like, why are my knives? And then see what might be suggested, see what other people are searching for. If they, why, why, why are my knives dull? Or why are my knives yeah. you know, not balanced? And then you understand that these are factors that your potential customers care about. Yeah, exactly. Or like, uh, and then just doing regular, seeing what the the discussion is all online around um, pain points, right? And kind of digging deeper by you know looking for okay, what just doing a Google search, even uh, what makes the best chef knife, and then seeing what people are saying on forums, and then figuring out from there, um, you know, what expanding on some of those pain points. I I have many chef knives and I've kind of been around the making of them for a while so I knew like I had a sense of it but you end up in your own little silo um particularly if you have experience in an industry you kind of end up siloed on the 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 experienced user end of the spectrum and it's hard to put yourself in the shoes of someone who may be much less experienced so there's actually a feature of our knife that we you know, did research and led to us including a bit of a finger guard, which is what prevent like um, it just prevents you from hurting your fingers, kind of uh, from the, from them slipping off the grip and into the the back of the blade while you're cutting. Uh, and this is like a professional chef would typically not want this in their mm-hmm. knife, but mm-hmm. we found that there was an appetite for this kind of thing um, through some research. Got it. So you would get this kind of feedback from using these tools like Uber Suggest, Google Trends, or search traffic, and then also just uh-huh. essentially tuning into what the community was talking about on the forum, see what they're complaining about, seeing what they were concerned about, and then you were taking this information and then going back in and prototyping based on all of this. Yes. Yeah. And then we did a bunch of prototyping. Both we initially we just did a bunch of kind of physical like 3d printing so we designed something in cad and then tweak it and see how that felt in our hands and then uh with physical prototyping after kind of later on this has all happened before the kickstarter even though so we had the pro the ultimate product ready to go by the time we launched the kickstarter got it so when you were uh, prototyping and you, you got a couple iterations, were you just getting them printed so you can try it out for yourselves or were you able to get in, into the hands of any potential customers? What was the next step after getting that feedback, creating the prototype, and then how do you see if that prototype needs to be improved on or not? Yep, um, so both, all of those things. So potential customers, like lay people, my family, family and friends, that kind of thing. But also um, I got in touch with some chefs in Toronto um, who tested it out and provided feedback. 
Um, so we had a good feedback loop going on kind of like to, to really refine the design before we went more public with it. Uh, we spent a lot of time getting it right. It, I mean, it paid off, but uh, it was a bit risky. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned earlier about how you can't really design by committee because it could essentially keep you in this loop forever of always or always making all these changes over and over again. So how did you know what kind of feedback you should take and which ones you could either you know throw in a backlog or completely ignore? Yeah, at some point, it's kind of just got to be a matter of taste, right? So some things aren't going to work together, certain elements. Can you give an example of that? Yeah. In the case of a knife, a chef knife in particular, um, you can't really have like an easy to sharpen knife and a really tough knife. Like mm-hmm. they are, they, they move in opposite directions. So in order, like if I was building a knife that was very easy to sharpen, um, it couldn't have excellent edge retention because those things move in opposite directions. And that's kind of an oversimplification of it, but that's a good example of something. Same with like the, this finger guard, right? I knew that might be an issue um, for professional chefs who um, are sharpening their knife regularly and it kind of eats away at the blade. And at some point um, it's going to get to the point where you're not going to be able to sharpen the bottom of the blade flat just because the finger guard is there and kind of gets in the way. Um, and in order to address that, we, we move, the finger guard doesn't extend all the way down the, the heel of the blade. It kind of goes three quarters of the way. So it gives you some leeway to sharpen. But So you, you would look for a compromise to, or exactly. if, there were, if, there were, uh, if there were the two pieces of feedback were on competing sides, you have to decide which one is essentially more core or which one's more important to the, to the, the core benefit that you're trying to offer with your product. Yeah, and it ended up um, like suiting the design of the knife well um, mm-hmm. and working out pretty nicely. So, so based on what you're saying so far or what you've been telling me, were you in a phase of were you in some phase where you're thinking about starting a business and you looked at what kind of experience you had, or were you already just, you know, an avid uh, collector of knives and then fell into into business? Like which way did you come about creating this business? I came to it from a more of a business background. So I knew there there's a real opportunity right now with kind of direct to consumer e-commerce. And I I knew this and I wanted to build a brand um online for for a number of reasons. Um I was going to be leaving the city I was in because my uh, my wife is a midwife uh and so we were kind of jumping around uh the province. And so I knew I would have like this, I wouldn't be able to have a job in a city. Mm-hmm. I was saving up and to launch my own business. I did a bunch of market research that kind of pointed me in the direction of um, starting a kitchenware business, but particularly a knife business, which um, worked out great because it was something I already had a ton of experience with, both as like um, predominantly as like a user, but also like an enthusiast. I got into knives, actually, not from kitchen knives. I became interested in kitchen knives because I was into throwing knives, wow. um, which is a strange and small <laughs> hobby. But, 
Yeah, this sounds like a, a much larger market, uh, what you're going after than nice. throwing knives. Yeah. Now, yeah. are there certain, I think what you're saying about direct-to-consumer, it's, it's certainly a very fast-growing, uh, I guess, business model. I, you see ads, I see ads all the time now for direct-to-consumer. I think, you know, glasses and, and mattresses were one of the, 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 the leading industries for bringing direct-to-consumer. Are there certain industries, based on what you've seen, seen now by going through this, are there certain aspects of an industry that, can lend well to direct-to-consumer that might be ripe for that kind of disruption? That's the challenge, I think, is figuring out which kind of industries are are kind of ready for the taking. It's It de- really depends on the industry. Like, if you were to look at something like mattresses, it was because previously shipping a mattress with coils in it you know, wasn't really possible until mm-hmm. a few years ago. So th- that innovation led to you know, squishing it into a box. In our case, knives are a bit different. Like, people are ordering them online, but to a large extent, people still do want to to, to hold and touch and feel this thing that's, you know, if you use it a lot, it becomes kind of an extension of your arm. Like, if you get that comfortable with it, right? You want to be able to, like, know where it is so you don't hurt yourself with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so having a good feel of it is usually pretty important. So we get around that by being good about uh, basically unlimited returns that are free, right? So if you don't like it, you can send it back. Um, and also trying to to show more than tell on the website. Um, and this has helped a bit. I feel like you know we can go a bit farther in that direction for sure, but um, it gives people the confidence at least that you know this thing is works well. <laughs> yeah, can, can you say more about this? I think this is an important point about show more than tell. Can you give an example of, of what it, uh, a telling would be and, 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 and on the other side, what it would mean to show? Yeah, uh, particularly when it comes to knives, it's just like show the knife cutting effectively um, really in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing. Um, and we've, you know, we, we aren't doing enough of this, but, uh, but we, in the past when we have done some of this, in ads or on our Kickstarter page or even on our website, it, it works quite well and people it resonates with people. So I was gonna say this usually means like lots of images and videos and probably less focus on text. Copy, yeah. Minimal copy actually. Very, very visual. Um, I think like people wanna understand at a high level what makes your knife um, you know, like what are the features of it? But beyond that, they wanna see, okay, like how does does this thing work well? The, the knives are a weird, and I, the jury's still out on this in terms of like my opinion. But uh, because you can go get a knife that will work at least for one kitchen session, yeah. For uh, uh, you know, like the price range is infinite, right? You can pay nothing all the way up to thousands of dollars. I think knives are in a very unique place in the market where like utility. Like raw utility to cut like a vegetable up is not as important as like how it works, right? Um, And maybe they are even unique in that way. Like, uh, you know, a hammer, I'm sure, I'm maybe oversimplifying this, but like if you were a contractor, um, you know, a hammer is a hammer is a hammer to a large extent. I'm sure there are like specialized, I know there are specialized framing hammers, but you know. Yeah, basically anything will do the trick, but it's mm-hmm. about like, you know, something that's dangerous and as personal as a chef knife 
seems to be have a lot more um, emotion tied to it. I see. So it goes beyond just the 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 actual use of the the product. There's more behind just using it as a cutting tool, essentially. Absolutely, yeah. So, like, talk, getting bogged down with features, I feel like it doesn't really encapture, you know, the, the doesn't wouldn't move the needle, right? If you just listed all the features of a chef knife. Right, that makes sense. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the the process. Going back a little bit to the process of creating the the basically, basically the the perfect knife to to start shipping out. You went through lots of iterations of of um, prototyping, and you mentioned that you uh, utilized three D printing to help along with this. Talk to us about that. Like how for someone out there that wants to go down this path of creating a product, but they and they want to iterate over it or through it a bunch of times, but they don't have the the funds to create a bunch of actual samples how does 3d printing uh, work and how did it work in your case uh it was good it was bad and then it was really good so <laughs> i had no cad experience um so i tried hiring someone uh and i was really hoping that that would work out but i tried two different contractors to help with turning a, a 2d design um into a 3d model that we could then go uh, 3d print and it didn't work out. So I ended up having to kind of invest time personally into learning CAD. Um, but once I did kind of get a sense of, okay, I can make this thing myself, um, being able to iterate on it was like infinitely useful. Um, and it, like we can print a 3D model of a knife for $30 instead of, you know, creating tooling, which could cost $1,000 to iterate mm-hmm. on a new version of a knife. Um, I mean, it wouldn't cost that much. You'd have to, you'd just make it by hand. But if you have particular contours or, you know, uh, you're using different materials or whatever it might be, it can be really expensive. And I bet kitchen knives are probably at the cheaper end of the spectrum of something you can just kind of, you know, um, make it by hand if you're not doing it at scale, um, whereas other products might be much more complicated. Um, So we ended up making probably 15 different 3D printed models before it was all said and done and we had kind of the one we liked. This was mostly for uh, the grip shape. So the handle and the bolster has like a groove in it. Um, And just in terms of getting those things like really focused and feeling good, uh, it took a bit of iteration. There's only so much you can like, you know, do on a computer right and it's at the end of the day it's a knife and you want to hold it in your hands and 3d printing like really made the difference on that we were using um 3d hubs i think is the name of the site and it connects you with uh people who have 3d printers locally um so you can get someone in your city to print um your 3d model for you very cool and they needed some some cad uh, drawings in order to to, to do this or what was there an intermediary step between the CAD and 3D printing? Yeah. Uh, so the, the CAD model is a 3D model and then you can export that into a format that uh, someone can put into a 3D printer. Um, and there's a bit of, usually the 3D printer will have some software that helps you kind of get it from a, a 3D model into something that's printable. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. the, the, usually, like if you can get the 3D model, the, the printer should be able to help you out with the, the rest of it. 
Got it. Now, how far can you get with prototyping using 3D printing? I'm assuming at a certain point you you might have wanted to graduate essentially to creating uh, something that looks more like the, the finished product. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we did the last few iterations with uh, like with the physical materials because it's important. We I had been testing uh, the steel we were using or we are using uh, for quite some time because we were trying to get excellent edge retention. And so this is kind of a balance of the the heat treatment program. So um, we use computer controlled heat treatment so we could kind of fiddle with things a little bit to try and get. Um, optimal edge retention for the um, kind of the thinness and angle of our edge which that's really detailed but <laughs> um, yeah like basically we just wanted to really you know uh, tune it so it was performing the way we wanted and you can't do this with 3d printing right it's you really need to play around with the actual physical material um, same with the wooden handles right we wanted to just kind of try making some so we could figure out some of the kinks um, that might come up with full-scale production. Got it. And when you went to to manufacture, were there assets that you could give them from your 3D printing work? Yeah, absolutely. So that the, the 3D models create some of the tooling to kind of cut out best the, the, the shape of the blade um, and, the, the, and to form the contours of the bolster. Um, so yeah, for sure. The, the 3D modeling was useful beyond just the prototyping stage. It was um, really useful for even um, communicating with the manufacturer around the, specific, the exact specifics of the product. Got it. Now, you mentioned Kickstarter a couple of times. Did you already have a finished product by the time you were ready to launch on Kickstarter? Yeah, so um, we did. Uh, we had the product that was pretty much ready for production, but we just needed the funds to do an initial production run because you can't just make you know a few because um, you'll never get time on any reputable manufacturer's line. Um, it's just kind of the reality. Yeah, it, we I kind of saved up some money and the money was originally going to be used for an... I was never going to do Kickstarter. I was originally going to just um, use the money I'd saved up to, do, to fund an initial production run. Mm-hmm. Um, but it took longer than I expected to get um, uh, like a product I was comfortable with making. Uh, so I ended up dipping into those savings just to kind of pay the rent and live. Um, and then realized Kickstarter was like a fantastic way to kind of test the market, build an audience and um, you know raise money for that initial production run all in one go. Um, so initially it was kind of, the plan was to just kind of launch the product, um, but Kickstarter ended up being kind of a wonderful thing that I just kind of fell into originally. And then, you know, once we committed to Kickstarter, I did a bunch of research about marketing your Kickstarter and how to build a following there. Yeah, so you're certainly on the the very far end of having a developed product uh, before launching on a Kickstarter. You know, lots of people have uh, come in probably uh, much earlier than, than you did, but it wasn't a part of the original plan, which is why you already had a lot of this done already. How much do you think it helped your project to have pretty much a finished product? And did it ever, did it hurt your product uh, project in any way? 
No, I think this was done intentionally too, because once we decided to go down the Kickstarter path, we really invested on trying to work out a lot of the kinks uh, with production and getting the design right uh, before we did the Kickstarter. Because I knew if we if the Kickstarter did well, um, if we disappoint people after the Kickstarter, then we're we're sunk anyway. Um, so getting uh, getting the product out there in a reasonable amount of time and the reaction from those people being positive um, was absolutely paramount to the success of the business long-term and to get us to where we are now. Um, So the reception was really good. And I think a large part of that was the kind of the the equity we built up initially in terms of getting the product right before launching on Kickstarter instead of trying to figure it out after. Yeah, Right. So because you were so far along already, you were able to deliver probably much much better than the expectations for other Kickstarter campaigns. Exactly. And that's huge. Um, Kickstarter people are amazing. Like I, I had no idea that this community was like so dedicated and vibrant and supportive. I mean, if you're messing up, they'll let you know. But um, I think, you know, on a large part, they're, they're very, very supportive, which was amazing. Even to this day, I'm in awe of how that all kind of played out. Got it. So you mentioned to to us um, before the the podcast uh, in in the pre interview questions about how you were actually able to bootstrap this entire business to get to where it's at today. How long did it take before were you were you able to sell any of these any products prior to Kickstarter or were the first sales after the the campaign? Um, the first sales were as part of the Kickstarter, so that was all a pre order. Um, from the Kickstarter onwards, I had just uh, I'd saved up money for about a year prior to that. I was working; um, I had a day job um, for <laughs> the last eight eight years before that. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the last year, I was just I knew I had wanted to. I'd always had this entrepreneurial bug and wanted to do my own thing. So I'd been saving up some money to just be able to take time off work to spend the time um, in order to. Uh, build this business. You don't need to do that, I don't think. Yeah, you don't need to quit your day job before you have um, you know, other income coming in. Um, I probably wouldn't recommend that to most people until they have a product they're quite confident has market fit. Um, so that was like quite scary. <laughs> um, if the Kickstarter failed, I was kind of, you know, would be working at a coffee shop or Whatever. Yeah. And uh, how much runway do you think uh, you would recommend someone have if they were to follow in your footsteps and to quit essentially before any revenue started to come in? It depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to develop a new mar- like new product uh, in a busy market, I, I think it's a bit riskier because there has to be a reception for that product. If you're doing private labeling or um, just like kind of straight businessy stuff like arbitrage or drop shipping or something like like that I think there's less risk there that you're gonna kind of you, you know you can kind of it's more your marketing prowess that's gonna make it succeed or fail as opposed to the the, 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 the merits of the actual product right there's less variables in place for success when you are launching just, you know, like you're saying, focusing on being a retailer essentially rather than in your case, you're, you're creating, you're inventing products and which is, you know, much, much, much more risky. It's risky up front. I think Mm -hmm. the, the, the thing you do, if you do hit on a product that works though, you've built a moat, right? 
around your right. product because nothing is 100% like the thing that you built. You have to come you have to come to me to buy a bullet knife, right? Yeah, that makes sense. So I think a big part of why you're able to do this too, or why you're able to to focus, why you're able to quit your job and focus on this was probably around uh, reducing costs and expenses. Any tips there on what do you think, or maybe to begin with, what do you think entrepreneurs typically spend a lot of money on that maybe they could cut out so that they can bootstrap their way to, towards you know generating a profitable business? Yeah, this is tricky. I mean, I, I, I had I'd been doing web design and marketing um, as a like that was my profession um, for a while, so I had a lot of the skills necessary myself to kind of take this on, mm-hmm. right? So I did a lot of things that people would typically pay other people to do, like web development or you know provide marketing expertise. Um, I was kind of just doing that myself. That said, everything I've learned, I just learned online. Um, I didn't learn this in school, right? You you can kind of like if you if you want to learn how to build an online business and how to market it, the resources are absolutely at your disposal. Certainly now more than ever. Like even compared to ten years ago when I learned this, started learning this stuff, um, the the resources are way way better. And to a large extent, it's changing all the time. So you need to be on top of it anyway. Um, so. Right. So I think the key here then is that the best way to keep costs and expenses down is to learn the skills that you would typically have to pay someone else to to do for you uh, in your business. And you learn it yourself, and and that basically you're not paying someone else to do it. And then also you get a better understanding, I think, of how the business works. So that when you do get around to hiring someone to do it, you know what to look for in terms of what kind of person to hire. Also, and also uh, what you sh- how you sh- should be delegating those tasks off. So I think it's certainly a a very worthwhile investment to learn a lot of these skills yourself. That also gives you the, the, if you, if you have some knowledge of the industry, it also gives you some taste in order to like understand how people are pricing their services and you Mm -hmm. know, who's offering something good versus bad. And if the price is good or bad. Um, So it gives you a bit of that baseline knowledge, even if you do, if you don't have the time to let's say design your own website, um, you'll know enough at least to kind of where to begin the, the conversation. So one, one thing that you mentioned that you had to learn or spend time researching was how to run a successful crowdfunding Kickstarter campaign. Talk to us about that. Like, What are some things that you found in your research that you knew you needed to apply towards your campaign? Yeah, um, so there was a few. So I knew that uh, PR plays a big role in the success, the, the big organic success of uh, many Kickstarters. Uh, so you need news coverage. The trick with that is you're not going to get news coverage unless you are partially funded. Because a Kickstarter that's sitting at $0 funding, um, no one's going to write about that. Mm-hmm. So you need to get the ball rolling. A lot of that comes down to your personal network thing you can do ahead of time in terms of building a list Um, but you need to have some awareness of what's going on before you launch uh, and people need to be primed to buy so in my case um, I kind of had done both I had a bit of a list and um, I had kind of warned a lot of people in my personal network that this thing was coming out and you know gauged interest in whether they would become backers and got them to back within the first day 
um, in order to get me to kind of 20% funded. Originally, we were trying to raise $25,000. So getting to 20% funded, um, you know, isn't impossible. But if if no one wants to back your thing, it's going to be very an uphill battle. Um, So that's very important is to get that early success um, will really help you a lot down the line. Um, Once you have some of that early success, PR, just you need to have a very well thought out PR strategy about who could potentially write about this and how you're going to get it in front of them and why they would write about it. Um, In our case, um, it was mostly just like we got a few random hits, really, uh, uh, from a long list of people we reached out to. Um, the two biggest ones were Uncrate, um, which is kind of um, a gear and gadgets uh, aggregator. Um, and that did really well. And then also on Gizmodo. Um, Gizmodo did a kind of um, a Facebook Live event where they were cooking or, um, with our knife, actually. Um, so they were just testing it on Facebook Live. And that was somewhat random, um, <laughs> but it worked extremely well. And these were both outlets that you actively pursued? Yep. I just um, sent emails that weren't, you know, canned emails. I, I kind of tried to uh, genuinely approach these people like people and uh, give them a pitch that made sense for their audience, um, which is very time consuming, but and especially like PR is a numbers game. You need to reach out to a lot of people in order to get some hits. Um, cause it, you know, even if it is a fit for their audience, it may not be the right time for the, the author or whatever. Um, so just, yeah, putting in the time and effort to not send a canned email to a list of a thousand people, but maybe send a very nicely brief, but personalized email to a hundred people. Now, is this the, 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 uh, most successful channel for you still to this day, PR? Uh, yeah, PR and cross promotions. Uh, we've done some successful cross promotions with other kitchenware brands um, that have gone over really well. But mo- I would say probably mostly PR. Um, we've had some su- really successful email campaigns. Email has worked extremely well for us. Um, a bit of success with uh, paid advertising and Facebook and stuff like that. Oh, cross promotion is definitely something interesting that I want to get to in a bit. Before we get there, uh, the the PR outreach that you're doing, you mentioned that you have to be very intentional about who could potentially write about you and your product, and also understand and communicate why they would want to write about it. And you mentioned as well that it's it's kind of a, it's a numbers game. Um, how do you balance that? How do you balance between let's spend as little time as possible so we can reach as most as, as many outlets. As possible versus spending uh, hitting less outlets but folks spending a lot more time on creating the right uh, pitch yeah you can prior like if you make a spreadsheet of everyone you want to hit um, you can prioritize that by people you think would be most likely to write about it but also um, you know would provide the greatest benefit to your campaign um, which is what I did uh, I just prioritized it by you know, who are the 150 most likely to write about it? And then the rest of the list, you know, if you get there, you get there. If you don't, you can send a spammy email, which I didn't. I like people don't, I'd done PR before. People don't like these people get thousands of emails a day, potentially depending on the author. So they're, if you send them a canned email, they're just going to ignore it. 
unless it's about something they've already heard about, uh, which is unlikely. Um, so prioritizing the list uh, and starting <laughs> with the people you think are most likely to write about it. Yeah, so that, that's that's an important point about how you want to focus on who is the basically the lowest hanging fruit, right? Who's ready to, who's primed and ready to write about you the most, um, and rank it that way, uh, because then you should have to also think about who would be the biggest benefit to you, right? Getting on a place like Uncreator or Gizmodo, I think, would be a huge benefit. Obviously, it was for you, but they were probably less likely to write about you than some like no name blog. I'm guessing, right? So how do you? Yep. No, in that case, in that situation, like what's what's more important? Is it the low hanging fruit or the biggest benefit? And of course, if there's if it's both, then that makes the most sense. But when you have to choose between whether you should focus on the small publications versus the ones with the greatest reach, how do you decide how to prioritize your time? I like I think it's most important to focus on your niche first. Um, so, like us, I, there was a lot of push around um, cooking blogs, cooking like websites and like news sources around that industry. We ended up not having a lot of hits in that, in that space, a couple, but nothing major. It was mostly in the kind of the, you know, quote unquote gear and, and right. sites like, um, you know, cool hunting and uncreate and stuff like that. Um, that, that kind of, it resonated more with, which in hindsight makes sense because um, those cooking sites don't write about Kickstarters, right? Um, but, uh, you know, it's, wor- it's worth understanding kind of who's most likely to write about it. Is it going to be covered on a, even a small cooking blog? Probably not, right? Like, because they don't write about um, new things. They write about popular things. Um, so it, it does take a bit of legwork to kind of understand the audience and the type of content that that publication is putting out in order to kind of both focus who you're spending time on, but also the type of pitch you're sending them. Um, so you may be able to, you know, the, the, the type of email you might send to a, a gear blog would be very different from someone like Gizmodo even, right? Um, because they're, you know, somewhat different audiences. Uh, particularly if you're comparing a gear site with a kitchen, like a kitchen kitchen blog. Right. So when you sit down to write this pitch, can you walk us through what kind of research you're doing and what you make sure to include in the the email? Yeah, that that was probably the most time consuming part uh, is writing these emails because you want you don't want it to be, go unnoticed. Otherwise, you're just kind of shutting in the dark. Um, and a lot of the time, it will go. You know they won't respond to you, but Mm -hmm. that's fine. That's part of it. Um, so being personal, like reading, like what some, like reaching out to a particular author is always the best. Um, so like understanding what they write about typically, um, maybe what's been on their radar most recently. Um, if there is a point of reference, if they've discussed something similar in the past, um, then you at least have a good kind of touch off point. Um, and trying to keep it like, you know, treat them like a human being and not like something who needs someone who needs to do something for you um, is a good way to get attention ironically. Right. Like, you know, you can't be, you know, you're not going to force them to do anything. So like give them what they, what they're likely to be interested in is the best way to go. And if they ignore it, they ignore it. But if you know, you catch them on the right day or they're already thinking about doing something similar to what you've propositioned, 
uh, then it'll make sense. I think it's also important to kind of frame your pitch according to the author and like have a couple different pitches kind of in the bag so you can frame it around uh, you know that author and their audience. Can you say more about that? What does that mean to to uh, frame it around the, the, their audience? Yeah, so like uh, in the example of a chef knife, you may um, pitch to a cooking blog with something like, you know, um, uh, be very focused on the 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 features and the like, you know, um, maybe like you know, an incredibly balanced knife um, for a great price might mm-hmm. be like the lead. Um, whereas like a gear site would be more about like the technical specs of the steel or like the wood or something. Uh, just something that better caters to the, the, what that aud- their audience might be looking for. And what, do you, what are your thoughts on templates? Do, do those work if you have uh, templates that you're using and kind of filling in the pieces around the specific uh, uh, PR outlet that you're reaching to, out to? I would say if you're using a template, Someone else has probably already sent it, and mm-hmm. will probably be ignored because they're they're seeing that the, the person who's receiving it has received that email, you know, copy yeah. and paste a few different things a thousand times before. You can take the, the 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 base elements of a template, like what is the template, make that your own. I think that you probably get better results like that. Um, I certainly did that, right? Like I, you know, I know I what. At some level, there's going to be a commonality between all PR pitch emails, but um, making it personal and unique goes a long way. Got it. So I want to talk now about the cross promotion that you that you've been doing that has been successful for you. Well, what what is a cross promotion? Yeah, so there's kind of two buckets here. So on when we did uh, a Kickstarter, and then after the Kickstarter ended, while we were making uh, the the knives for all of those pre-orders, we started. Um, a Indiegogo in demand campaign, which is the ability to continue to sell pre-orders mm-hmm. um, after your, you know, finite campaign has ended. Whether so, whether you did a 30-day campaign on Indiegogo or Kickstarter, you can kind of migrate that to Indiegogo afterwards, so you can continue to do pre-orders. While we were doing both of those crowdfunding campaigns. Um, we did cross promotions with other crowdfunding campaigns, and this worked quite well. Um, and we kind of just sourced those by reaching out to other campaigns that we felt might have a some crossover audience. So anyone doing like a Kickstarter that was in the kitchen space or anything like that, uh, we had good success with cross promoting those. Um, usually in uh, updates um so you're kind of regularly discussing the the development of your product with your audience uh, and you want to be at the bottom of those you just typically like plug another um campaign that the your you know your backers might be interested in and then um so that's we did that quite a bit during the crowdfunding campaigns and then afterwards we've kind of worked a bit more um, closely, but um, like more intensely, but less volume in terms of uh, like uh, cross promotions with bigger brands than us. Um, so we have a um, 
a relationship with Anova, which is a uh, mm-hmm. the sous vide. Yeah, um, and so they're selling um, Boulette Chef knives on their site as kind of an accessory uh, to the, the sous vide, which is just kind of one example of a kind of cross promotion. Right. And when you do these kind of cross promotions, do you have to focus on brands that are at the same level in, in size or in, in um, basically a customer list as you, or can you shoot higher than that? Like what, what's been your experience? Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's any harm in shooting higher, uh, certainly, because sometimes bigger brands are looking to, you know, both communicate value to their their followers. Like if if the if it makes sense for this bigger brand to tell their audience about you, and that that bigger brand would see some value there, um, I think it makes sense, and I've had some success with that for sure. Um, they like, and it does add value, right? Like if you or an appliance brand, uh, and typically you're only talking about your own appliance um, that may tire your audience after some time. Um, so introducing new things that this brand thinks is interesting um, could certainly kind of help with them with engaging their audience, and it kind of scratches our back in terms of sales, right? Um, the Those relationships are not, they're asymmetrical though, right? Because what well, we would get sales out of it and they would, you know, um, get something more intangible like, you know, customer engagement. So those can be a little bit harder to sell as opposed to someone who's like a brand at your level um, kind of doing similar sales and you can, it's kind of a mutual back scratching. Uh, but they can be done. So this, you were doing this initially using it during your, or I guess on, with your ongoing indie go-go uh, in-demand uh, campaign, and you were doing this through these updates that you were able to send to, to the contributors to the to the the campaign. But nowadays, are you using what is it? How's it being done? Is it through email marketing where you're doing these cross promotions, or what platforms are you uh, cross promoting on? Yeah, so it's become much much less frequent um, now because. I don't want to be spamming any of my audience at all. Um, so a little bit via email, um, a little bit via ads, just kind of like touting a relationship between mm-hmm. the two. Um, yeah, but I would say the most success specifically we had with cross-promotion to date um, was with uh, crowdfunding. We have an interesting opportunity coming up with cross-promotion, but I'll, I'll have to leave it at that. <laughs> Now, do you think that someone that doesn't have a existing crowdfunding campaign can they would would, would they do you think crowdfunding uh, creators would be receptive to them reaching out if they have an audience of their own and you know are willing to 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 engage in that kind of or do you think that the um, crowdfunding campaign creator would be willing to engage in that kind of agreement? Yeah, I think that they are because they're communic- there's like an established communication schedule. Uh, with within crowdfunding campaigns, um, that most of them are quite receptive to that. If you can expand their audience, because you you know you have an email list that you're willing to promote their product to, um, I think that they would probably yeah definitely be open to that. Most most kicks, most crowdfunding campaigns are looking for kind of any marketing they can get. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah. especially since they're looking to get in a very short period of time, they might be more exactly. willing to work with as many people as possible. Um, so I'll talk, I want to talk a little bit about the, the site and the design. It's a beautifully designed site. Definitely recommend folks check it out. B-U-L-A-T kitchen.com. Uh, was this designed by, by you? Uh, yes, it was. <laughs> Very nice. What went into the design? Like, what was your approach to creating this, uh, this, this site? I knew that I wanted it to be very visual, um, and the site is kind of a work in progress right now. So mm-hmm. I've laid the foundation for something that I'm going to be building on over time, uh, and this was kind of then intentionally so that I could, you know, create landing pages that catered well to specific campaigns um, and adding other products in the future. And is this like a um, a custom theme, or did you use a, a free theme? What was what was what's what is it built on? Yeah, the theme's name is Narrative, uh, and it's a free theme on the Shopify theme store. And I used that as a foundation and kind of built off of that my own uh, my own theme and knew um, I leveraged the kind of the sections functionality a lot and um, was able to kind of build out a few pages that catered to my products, but also um, built a foundation where I can layer in more products and more um types of pages that all feel very similar uh, within the design of the site. Got it. Now, what, what other kind of um, apps or tools that you use uh, on or off Shopify to help run the business? Um, so we leverage uh, 3PL, a third-party logistics company called Ingram Micro, um, which is all synced through the Shipwire app, um, which is tremendously useful for fulfillment. Um, we fulfill partly... Um, through Ingram Micro and partly through um, our home office. So we also use Orderdesk, which is a good app um, for kind of creating some logic around when an order comes in, what to do with it, uh, and how it gets fulfilled. Um, That's probably my favorite app recently. I'm kind of excited on this fulfillment kick. (laughs) Um, What else? We use uh, a lot of the, the, the good, reliable ones like MailChimp, um, order desk, like an order printing app. Mm-hmm. Or no, I already order desk is the uh, the fulfillment one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but yeah, um, probably Mailchimp is the other one that we we use quite a bit for segmenting our lists. Awesome. Very cool. So, you know, thank you so much for your time, Alex. Bulatkitchen.com, B-U-L-A-T-K-I-T-C-H-E-N.com is a website. What can we expect in the in the new year? What are some things that you, I know you said that there are a few things in the works that you can't mention, but anything that the audience should look out for or look out for from you guys? Yeah. So we've got some exciting partnerships uh, within the next year, um, but also some new products. So uh, expanding on the line of uh, the chef knife and paring knife that did really well on Kickstarter uh, into some a bread knife. And then um, also coming out with some kind of very new, fresh looking designs uh, within the next year or so. Awesome. Very exciting. We'll certainly tune in to see what other amazing products come out of your, your, uh, your company. Again, really appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much, Felix. Here's a sneak peek for what's in store in the next Shopify Masters episode. It's all about imagining. You want your customers standing in front of your products and say, oh, you know, I see myself using this. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial. 
Also, for this episode's show notes, head over to shopify.com slash blog.